If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if, yet, for if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. The context, of course, when, in which the Apostle Paul is stating this fact, that there is one gospel, and he is fulminating against the preaching of another gospel, is not the same situation as I'm addressing today, the so-called social gospel, in that in the context, of course, it was the work of the Judaizers in the early church seeking to combine the old covenant with the new. And Paul, who had been a Pharisee of the Pharisees before he was converted, uses the strongest possible language in condemning those who would preach another gospel, which he said is not a gospel. But this, of course, will apply in this context of what I'm speaking on today, the so-called social gospel, which is not a gospel at all. If I may say so, it's even further removed from the gospel than that which Paul was condemning in the strongest possible language. But before we consider what the social gospel is, inverted commas, social gospel, we need to be clear in our own mind what the true gospel is. For in these days, one cannot assume that this is understood. Now, I know it's understood here, don't get me wrong, but in evangelical circles, as generally speaking, there is a form of gospel being preached which is not a gospel at all. Uh, for instance, the Alpha Course, uh, which entirely admits repent, uh, uh, omits repentance from its uh, teachings, and uh, we see the result of what has happened, Archbishop Welby and so on, and Nicky Gumbel fraternizing with the Pope, completely worldly, use some evangelical terminology, but in actual fact, what they are teaching and doing is clean country uh, to what the Bible is all about. Now, what is the gospel designed to do? Well, Paul, when he begins his epistle to the uh, Romans, and before he deals with the result of false religion, he says this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is a power, dunamis, of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, 
For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That is the justified. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And we need to understand first and foremost what the Bible has to say about the natural unsaved human being. The Bible is not very complimentary about human beings at all, but it is very truthful. And so when we turn to Jeremiah 17 and 9, it says this, The heart of man is deceitful, crooked or slippery, above all things, and desperately are incurably wicked, who can know it? The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately, incurably wicked. It's not some slight malaise that we suffer from as human beings. It is a complete alienation and rebellion against God and all that he has commanded. And not only so, but man is incapable in and of himself of changing from what he is by nature. Jeremiah 13, 23 can the Ethiopian change his skin? Are the leopard his spots? Then ye may also do good that are accustomed to do evil. It is not within the power of man to change himself, even if he so desired, which he does not, in and of himself. And the, the Bible speaks in several places about this particular orientation that is the natural man if we turn to Romans 8 7 it says this the carnal mind that's the natural man's mind is enmity against God it is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can it be it doesn't say the natural man is an enemy of God he says he's enmity personified against God and as such he's not able to be subject to the law of God and he's not able because he doesn't want to be and he doesn't want to be because he has a sinful nature I often preach in the open air and I say what's wrong with the world human beings and what's wrong with human beings they're in rebellion against God. And what does the Bible call that? Sin. And what is sin? It is the breaking of God's commandments, either by acts of omission or commission. Why do men sin? Because they're sinful by nature. And, not only so, they are willing sinners. The Bible also speaks about mankind being enslaved to sin and Christ when addressing the Pharisees the religious of the day said ye are of your father the devil and the works of the devil ye will do it speaks of the whole of the world that's the world system lying as it were being rocked asleep 
in the arms of Satan, lieth in wickedness. And Christ, speaking of what man is like in his innermost being, I only jotted down Matthew 15, 7 to 19, summarized it, but you find the same in Romans 8, 1, 28 to 32, Galatians 5, 9 to 21. <coughs> Christ is dealing with um, the uh, outward ablutions that the Pharisees were so fond of, and he said to them, do you not understand? It's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, it's what comes out of a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. In fact, I think I will go to Romans chapter 1 because it gives an even more, a fuller and more awful list of infamy that mankind is guilty of. Verse 29, Romans 1, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Well, look at the world today. Look at this nation today, and you'll see all these things are prevalent in our nation, in our society at large. And the Bible depicts the natural man as totally depraved, given over to wickedness, who loves darkness rather than light, whose whole nature is dead set against God, who has no desire left to himself to be otherwise. And we well know that people boast of their wickedness, of the things that they have done, we think of David Cameron, for instance, being very proud of having introduced same-sex marriage and how he wishes it to export it to other countries. And in British embassies around the world, these wicked relationships are being, are being taking place under the legal protection of Her Majesty's government. That's just one aspect of it. And as we well know, our society is plunging ever deeper into wickedness. Now, as somebody remarked, and I don't know who it was, and certainly wasn't me, but it encapsulates the whole situation very well. It says the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. What man is. And no human being is capable of dealing with that. It takes the miraculous saving power of God to deal with the heart of man and the Bible speaks of God giving a new heart. 
It's Hebrews 8, 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, said the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. In addition, the Bible speaks of the Christian as somebody who has become a new creation in Christ Jesus and who have been given a new heart. You hear the expression, ask the Lord Jesus into your heart. Is he going to come into a heart that's full of wickedness, evil, and every other wicked thing that I've just spelled out from the word of God? He does greater than that. He gives us a new heart which is created after God in righteousness. No human being can do that. This is the work of the Almighty God through the operation of the Spirit of God, always accompanied by the preaching of the Word of God or the dissemination of the Word of God, as the case may be. And it is only by giving this new heart that mankind can be changed. Now, every true Christian knows, sadly, we're still troubled by the old man. Well, I speak for myself. My greatest enemy is not the devil, nor the world, it's me. I have great trouble with myself. But Paul, I'm thankful, mentions this about the spirit lusting against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. As the old Puritans used to put it, if you're a Christian, there's a scuffle going on inside. And it's an encouragement in one way that there is. Because if you're not troubled about your tendencies, which come from the old man, then, I'm sorry, but there must be a question mark over your standing. So this salvation, which is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and only by the power of the Holy Ghost is designed to deal with sinful men and women. That's the purpose of it. And of course we know that this is all based upon the life and death of Christ. In his death, he expitiated our sin, that is, he completely purged away our guilt, wiped clean the, uh, the, the uh, sheet, our crime sheet, and he satisfied divine justice in so doing, so that death could no longer hold its prey. It was not possible, says the writer, that he could be holden of death. Why? Because he paid the penalty in full. And therefore death had no more claim over it. But in addition, the Bible clearly teaches when by the grace of God we repent and believe the gospel, not only are our sins forgiven, but the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. So that we now have a righteousness that is acceptable with God and we are declared to be righteous by God himself. Not on the basis of anything that we are in ourselves, but it all rests upon what he did in his life and in his death. That's, very briefly, what the gospel is about. It is the power of God. 
the dynamis, the dynamite. In fact, the dynamite is a wrong word. It's the dynamo of God. Dynamite is a, a brief explosion, but the dynamo is a constant source of power. I like that better. And that's where the word dynamo comes from, by the way. The generation of power. As an electrician, I know a bit about that. Sometimes, in a way, I didn't like to know about it. And this is what the gospel is. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's God's ordained way by which men and women are saved. Well, John 3.16 is all about that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What for? To die on the cross. God's justice was not bypassed that sinners might be saved. He died under the penalty of the broken law which we broke, not he, and upon him was laid the iniquities of us all, and the Bible says God spared not his own son. Now, that should be at once a cause of shame to us, but also a cause of great comfort, that God went to such trouble to save sinful wretches like you and I. And if you don't know you're a sinful wretch, I think you need to do a bit of praying that God would show you that you are. The story is told, I don't like telling too many stories, of a Scottish minister of the Church of Scotland who was heading for the General Assembly from the Highlands to the General Assembly in Edinburgh. And as was his custom, every place he stayed at, he gathered the people together and catechized them, as they used to say in those days. If you, you know, in those days, the, the various churches had a standard of belief, and they, they set it out in a formulaic way, and the people learned it. As I've often said, the shorter catechism, which was designed for children, would choke most adults today. They wouldn't be able to swallow it. I always remember the first one, I'll have to say this. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I won't go any further because time is short. Anyway, he, in this particular place, he gathered them in and he catechized them and he said to the landlady at the end, is there anybody else? Well, he said, there's a poor, simple girl here. She's a maid. Well, he said, I want to speak to her. And this is what he said. He said to her, you pray this prayer, Lord, show me myself. And on his return for the General Assembly, because in those days it took a long time to get from the Highlands to Edinburgh and back, when he returned, he asked after her and he said to her, did you pray that prayer? Oh, yes, sir, she did. And he has shown by myself, I'm undone. What shall I do? I am so sinful. He said, now you pray this prayer, show me thyself. And several years later, a well-dressed woman came up the pathway to the mass and knocked on the door. Who was it? The same person. Wonderfully saved, life transformed, now a grown-up lady. But you see, that's the heart of the gospel. We need to be shown ourselves first what wretches we are in order then that we flee to Christ and call upon him and no repenting sinner ever called upon him in vain. And God loves to save the vilest of sinners. The greatest of the apostles 
was the most wretched, violent persecutor of the early Christian church. But God loves to do that. The all-scourings of the world keeps us in our place, doesn't it? Doesn't allow pride. The power of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. The only cure for the sinfulness that afflicts any nation is that the hearts of the people are changed by the power of God because it's out of the heart of man that all these enormities are coming, including wars and all the rest of it. It's the wickedness of man that's causing this. Again in the open air, I said, look at the world. It's in a mess. I said, who's doing it? They said, it's not coming from outer space. It's not something that's sort of in the atmosphere. It's coming out of the hearts of people like you and I. And we've all played our part in this. So I said, just look at the world. The world is the result of human rebellion against God. But only the gospel of Jesus Christ, applied by the power of the Holy Ghost, can remedy this. Now then, we come to what's called the social gospel, which is no gospel at all. And what the social gospel tried to do was to deal with the effects of sin without dealing with the cause of sin. It is like leprosy. Leprosy, of course, as you know in the Bible, is often used as a type of sin. How it disfigures. As time goes on, it more and more manifests itself and defigures the human being. And what they sought to do is like putting a plaster over this leprosy in order to try and contain it, and they even thought could cure the malady by social means rather than by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they believed that if you educated people, if you <coughs> give them work to do, if you cleaned up the environment in which they lived, then you could completely transform society and you could therefore bring the kingdom of God to be upon earth. The first one to start the social gospel movement in America was a New York City pastor called Rauschenbusch. Bush. Sounds German. Big mouthful who dedicated himself to revising the attitude of American Christians. He believed that the church's agenda had replaced Jesus' agenda, which he called the kingdom of God. He taught that the duty of Christians is not of getting individuals to heaven, but of transforming their life on earth into harmony with heaven. So, here it is, this was bypassing the necessity of a spiritual change in the individual, dealing with the fountainhead of all wickedness that human beings are guilty of, and only dealing with the effects of that. 
so that he believed that the kingdom of God was not going to be established by people being born again of the Spirit of God, you know, Nicodemus, except a man be born again or born from above more correctly, he can neither see nor enter the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is a spiritual kingdom. If you're born again in the Spirit of God, you're a member of that kingdom. But he was, has the idea of completely bypassing that and dealing with the evils that were produced by man's fallen and sinful behavior by using social objectives and methods in transforming the four so that if you met their physical needs it would transform them spiritually and morally and help them to improve their lives. Now it's quite subtle when you think about it because of course in those days before the welfare state and all the rest of it I mean there was desperate need in society. There was ignorance, there was vice, there was drunkenness, there was poverty. You know, society, even in Victorian times, was in a pretty awful state. And so it was in America as well. And so, you see, you might think to yourself, well, if we can clean up society, give better living conditions, then, of course, man's behavior will improve and we will get rid of all the vice and drunkenness etc which is endemic in our society bypassing the true gospel which deals with the fountainhead of all wickedness it now concentrated upon the effects of man's moral degeneracy to the exclusion of the true gospel. Now I say that, the exclusion of the true gospel, because there is, and I'll come to this, there is a place for good works. You know, the social reformers of the 1900s, what they said about, but they had a different approach to dealing with the situation, a different order of things. And so, there were all these improvements made into the lots of men and women uh, at the turn of the century into the 1900s. Of course, science then was seen as the way by which all the wells, evils, and poverty, etc., would be eradicated. So education, the advancement of science, welfare state, etc., that was what would transform society and even evil doing was seen as a sort of evolutionary hangover although that's developed more recently in that evil doing is explained away as a genetic uh, uh, orientated behavior our genetic makeup uh, that's what uh, constitutes how we will behave they hadn't got to that place then but it's really an outworking of it. Well then, let us look at society today. We are better off than we ever have been. 
I'm better off than I've ever had been. I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I was brought up in the west of Ireland on a small farm. We didn't have much, and we were a lot better off than a lot of people because we had the food off the farm to eat. No electricity, no running water, and in summer we went to school on bare feet. Actually, we loved it. We're always pestering our mother to get her Wellingtons off, usually, so we could run around in bare feet. And other than the clothes we went to church in and school in, my mother was constantly darning them. In the end, there was more thread and darning in this, what we were wearing than the original clothes, fabric. <coughs> so I'm far better off. But if I hadn't been saved by the grace of God, I'd dread to think what I'd be like. Now look at society. Housing has been transformed greatly. Education, well, hmm, a question what education has improved. Medical science has improved, better treatment and so on. The whole of the environment is far better than it used to be, even in the not-too-distant past. Has man's behavior improved? Is society better behaved and less sinful than it used to be in the 18 and the 1900s and the 20th century? Of course it isn't. It's gone from bad to worse. We are growing progressively more wicked every day, in the Western world at any rate. All the benefits that education, science, etc. has brought to humanity and the ills of poverty and so on having been alleviated to a great extent has not improved human behaviour, nor can it, because it hasn't dealt with the cause of the human misbehaviour. It, it cannot deal with the heart of man. And if you go back in time when the majority of people were poor and the aristocracy were, generally speaking, the only rich people, well, they were notorious for their vice in those far-off days. Generally speaking, people were ignorant, brutal, vicious, and drunkards. But the aristocracy were the same, only they carried it off with a more polished air. And of course we know today that sin is not the prerogative of the working class or the shirking class. We know, as was quoted earlier on, from the top of the head to the sole of the foot is full of wounds, bruises and putrefying sores. The social gospel making con the conditions of people better, giving them more uh, money to spend, will not result in improved behavior that will be spent upon wicked pursuits. Now, if you think of things today, the average British person, or a lot of them anyway, can go on holidays to all sorts of exotic places. And you know that British holidaymakers are renowned for their wicked, drunkenness, shameless behavior.
in the Spanish resorts and so on. They are renowned for it. Whereas before we used to be noted for our reticence, modesty, and even the poked fun at the British for being such. It has had the opposite effect because it has given the opportunity for people to indulge their sin. Money hasn't improved their behaviour, it's just facilitated wicked behaviour. The social gospel, which is no gospel, is bound to fail. Has failed, is failing. Now let me go back briefly to the Salvation Army, for instance. The Salvation Army was founded with good intentions. William Booth didn't wish to establish an organization like the Salvation Army. I shall read, he says, he wished that, he thought, thought that Christians should take the message of the Bible out of the church into the streets where it was most needed. Amen to that. But it was the message of the Bible. He never intended to start an organization Booth and his wife just wanted to bring hope to the desperately poor cities of industrial London that traditional churches wouldn't accept, to their shame, prostitutes, thieves, alcoholics, and did what he could to offer spiritual and practical guidance. The spiritual was first. And if you go back earlier than that, the so-called social reformers of the 1800s, Wilberforce, Shaftesbury and others, they always put the preaching of the gospel first and the improvement of the lot of men and women and children second. We hear a lot about Wilberforce and we know he deserves a lot of uh, praise for his persistence with the help of others in getting slavery abolished. Then there was Lord Shaftesbury. The number of things he was involved in, getting children up out of the mines and women up out of the mines. Their work in hours in factories reduced to 12 hours a day. Imagine that. The establishment of ragged schools, getting the boys down out of the chimneys, etc. But it all went along with the preaching of the gospel first and foremost. And that's how the Salvation Army began. But you see, what happened to the Salvation Army and the YMCA? The preeminence and the first importance of the preaching of the gospel, bit by bit, was supplanted by social work. Have you ever seen a Salvation Army person preaching? All I've ever seen in all my Christian life is them blowing their trumpets on the street very nicely, collecting money. They have gone from preaching the gospel of the salvation, saving grace of God in Christ, to the social gospel. It is now really a social work. That's what it's all about. Lives are not being transformed. In addition, there has been this hand-in-hand -hand departure from the truth because, you see, 
For years they have led ecumenical processions to Salvation Army at the front. I know in Liverpool, for instance, as they parade between the Anglican and Roman Catholic cathedrals, who's at the head of it? Salvation Army. Same with the YMCA, which again was founded for good purpose. That young men, and of course the Young Women's Christian Organization, when they went to the cities, would have a healthy, safe place to stay, wouldn't be influenced by the vices of the city they went to, but of course, you see, the gospel was also preached and taught in these places. And they were good organizations. And I say that because we have to be very careful in that we, the old saying, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, that there were those, in order to avoid the tent, the taint of the social gospel, go to the opposite extreme. They are indifferent to what's happening in society. They have become a mutual admiration society. Unlike your pastor here, they never preach in the open air. They never take the gospel to the masses. They're behind closed doors. The state now uh, has undertaken to meet the physical needs of society. But originally it was and we give credit where it's due, the Methodists who were the forefront of this movement to look after the physical needs of society, but the spiritual needs were always the preeminent focus of their endeavors. But we need to be careful that we're not like the priests and the Levites who pass by on the other side and pretend that we don't see the things that are wrong where we can intervene but if we do intervene we must always be careful to deliver the message of salvation rather than just alleviate the present situation whatever it is we're trying to alleviate the bible speaks of titus 3 verse 8 we are to be careful to maintain good works but we're never going to effectively deal with it unless we preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Ghost. Now with this I close how quickly time passes. The great awakening which transformed British society to a large degree from being a vicious society, as Reverend Ivan Foster said, the great awakening tamed the Englishman. Because you read about it how rough it was in those days and what these men faced as they went out to preach. That's what transformed the society. And the social gospel, which the social reformer, should I say, followed on from that. And if we are going to see our society changed, it will only be by the preaching the gospel of the grace of God in the power of the Holy Ghost. And I will say to you, Every time I go out, I realize my powerlessness. I look at the spiritual zombies going past, dead in trespass and sin, and I feel my utter helplessness. Unless God, by his Spirit, empowers his ministers and his people in general, there is no hope for this nation or for the world.